All right, everybody, welcome back to the season premiere of, it's been season number nine, folks. We've been at it for quite some time. I have missed all of you. I have missed having these difficult conversations, and we're going to jump back into it. Uh, I can't think of a better time to have somebody that is an expert in negotiating your ways through difficult conversations than right now with everything we have going on in the country. So without further ado, let me go ahead and bring up Moshe Cohen. Moshe, what's happening? Hi, Dean. So nice to uh, be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's it's great. It's great to have you. Um, thank you for taking time out to you know kind of share some of your wisdom, and uh, you know maybe tell us a little bit about what you do uh, during your day and 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 how you got into the difficult conversation business, if you don't mind. So sure. So uh, one of the things I do is I teach at Boston University. I'm a senior lecturer in the uh, Western School of Business, where I teach negotiation leadership. Uh, organizational behavior and mediation. And I've been doing that there for uh, about almost 23 years. And I also do a lot of teaching and training in companies worldwide, uh, mostly in negotiation and leadership, but also difficult conversations and um, influencing skills, leader, uh, leadership and uh, communication. So lots of different subjects, all related to helping people work more, um, more effectively with other people. And then uh, aside from that, I'm also a mediator. So one of the things that I do is actually get in the middle between people in conflict and I help them have those difficult conversations. So I got to ask, so how did you get into this? Like what made you decide that this was the business to be in? What's your background? So my background is weird. Um, I started off in physics and uh, after doing four years of physics as an undergrad, I discovered that physics is really too hard for me. So I went into engineering. I worked as an engineer for a couple of years, got a master's in it, and then uh, worked in robotics for about 11 years. But over time, I decided to move more into the people side of things. So I went to business school and I got my MBA. And in the course of doing my MBA at, at BU, I uh, discovered I don't like managing anything and I'm not very good at it. But what I did love was my negotiation class. And in my negotiation class, we had one week on mediation and I got to play the mediator in a role play and I fell in love. So as a result of that class, I went to my professor and I um, I asked for some names of people to call and I got trained as a mediator and I started mediating in 95 and uh, so nice. It's one of those things I, I really enjoy doing. And, you know, I was an okay engineer, um, but in mediation, I found something I'm really good at and that I really enjoy. And from that, people soon after that started to ask me to teach. So I started teaching mediation and negotiation and then other subjects as well. Uh, that That's incredible that you, uh, I mean, you really went from, you know, being in charge of things and, and, you know, neat little silos to managing something as, uh, as difficult as, as people and human emotions and being, and trying to teach people how to manage that and negotiate it in conversations. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting transition. I took my first negotiation class because I felt like I was a bad negotiator and then it turns out I wasn't. And in the course of taking that class, I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about how to interact with people. And then in the course of teaching this stuff for all these years, I discovered that, you know, skills is one thing, but being able to use them is a whole nother thing. And my real interest was how to help people get over whatever challenges they bring into the conversation themselves so they can have the, the conversations they need to have and advocate for themselves more effectively. All right. So we're going to circle back to that. So let me ask you this. Go ahead. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Let me ask you this. So, why do you think it's so important? Why do we keep coming back 
to difficult conversations. Why is it? Why does it seem like every once in a while people are like you know what we need to, we need to have these difficult conversations, but people don't stay consistent with it. Yeah. So I, I think the key word there is difficult because no matter what we do, they don't get easier. Uh, you know, as a former roboticist, I feel like you know, people are annoying. Robots basically do what you tell them, and if you don't need them, they sit there quietly and don't do anything. But people interact with each other all the time, whether it be our family members, our friends, our coworkers, people on the street. We rub up against each other all the time, and we do things that, that get on each other's nerves. And the problem is that very often that leads to conflict, and a lot of people are uncomfortable with conflict. And when, when you're uncomfortable with conflict, it brings up some of the normal fears that people have, right? When, when people engage in these kind of conflict-ridden situations, they bring a lot of fear into it. One fear is that something bad might happen, right? If, if I engage in this conversation, the person might take some action against me. They might retaliate, right? They might hit me, right? So, or, or, or we're worried about relationship damage. If, if I bring this up with this other person, they won't like me anymore. Or, you know, you know some, 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 somehow will damage the relationship. And another fear that people bring into it is a fear of emotional pain, right? What if I bring up this thing and the person starts to cry or stands up and yells at me and I'm going to feel bad? So because we're afraid of something bad happening, damaging relationships and, and feeling bad about the situation or making someone else feel bad, we tend to really feel uncomfortable about these conversations. And yet they're absolutely essential in order for us to function alongside and with other people. Well, let's let's dissect what you just said a little bit. So let's talk about each piece of, of the negotiation. So when you're in these negotiations, I mean, have you been involved in 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 circumstances where you're you know you're the middleman, and now people are crying, and the and the emotion becomes overwhelming? Um, if you've been involved with that, if you could share a little bit about it, and then how do you negotiate that? How do you get things back on track? So. You know, as a mediator, being in the middle, it's actually easier because I'm not involved in the emotion. I'm there for the process and I help them out. So I have this sort of calm center that helps me manage the situation. And typically what, what would happen is if a situation escalates that way, I would separate the parties. And I'd, I'd talk to each of them separately, give them a chance to regroup emotionally when they're not faced with the other party, um, ask them open-ended questions to get them to talk about why things are as emotional for them, what's going on for them, what they need from me or what they need from the process in order, in order to participate fully in it. And you do that with both parties and you do that enough and people get to a better place where they can now talk in, in a more rational way with each other. And it's not that emotions are bad, right? Emotions just are. We, we are basically emotional creatures. It's when we don't know how to deal with them or we don't know how to uh, have conversations with those emotions in place, that's when things get difficult. And, uh, and that's where I, as a mediator, can help. What, what's more difficult, actually, is when I'm one of those parties, right? And that happens, actually, mostly at home. Right? Because with family members, you know, you push each other's buttons, and you're right in there. Your emotions cannot be parked away somewhere else. You're, you're, you're right there in the ring with, with everybody else. You know, I, I have four children, you know, I've, I've had four, four teenagers, plus two foster kids, so six teenagers. And going through that with all of them, you know, things get very volatile. There's tears, there's crying, there's yelling, there's storming out. And now I'm not this neutral party that has a calm center. I'm one of the parties. And then the hard part is how do I calm myself down? How do I calm them down? 
how do I restore the conversation to a way that it's productive? So I'm going to ask a question that I think most people uh, probably are thinking about is how do you re- how do you recognize when it's time to remove yourself from the situation and what kind of coping mechanisms do you have in order to calm yourself down when you're directly involved like a parent um, in a family dispute? So, you know, each one of us has different triggers that tends to send us into uh, emotional overload. And we need to be attuned to those triggers. But more than that, we each also have symptoms that show up when we're triggered. So for some people, you might feel your heart rate go up. For some people, they may feel hot or or flushed. Um, Some people might might actually shake from anger or, 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 or tremble with fear. Um, different people have different stress symptoms. And one of the keys is to know yourself, know what happens to you. So for example, for me, one of the things that happens is I shut down. I can't speak. I can't think. I just, it's like everything's frozen. And to me, that's a sign that I need to step away. Okay. Right. I had a situation not too long ago where someone did something very wrong to me (laughs) and I was furious about it. And I remember my daughter was visiting at the time and she said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, nothing for the next two hours because I need to calm myself down. But I was actually shaking. I was so angry. And, uh, you know, you need to try to be more attuned to what happens to you in the moment. I really believe that life happens in moments and we can be perfectly fine. And then something happens in a moment where we lose it. And in those moments, we need to be attuned to what happens to us specifically. And it's going to be different for each person. What happens to you when you get angry? What happens to you when you get frightened? And, you know, you've been around long enough that you've been angry and you've been frightened and you've been overwhelmed. You can identify, if you you think about it for a little bit, what are the typical things that happen to you? What's your go-to in terms of stress symptoms? And then once you identify those, try to be attuned to them. So when they happen the first thing you want to do is stop and slow down because it takes it takes time for your thinking brain to catch up to your emotional brain. And you need to slow down enough so your thinking brain can catch up and you can respond to the situation rather than react. You know, bad things happen when we get reactive. And good things happen if we can slow down enough that we start thinking rationally. Now, I'll give you a quick example. You know, do you ever get an email that just was completely overwhelming or infuriating? Uh, Once or twice. Yeah. So what happens to me is I open that email and I'm like, ah, and I close it. (laughs) And then I come back an hour later and I open it again. I'm like, ah, and I close it. And I keep doing that until one of those times I open the email and I'm like, all right, got this. Because that's the point at which my rational brain has overtaken my emotional brain. And now I know how to react. So, you know, know, a, a key thing in life is learning how to spot your stress symptoms and slow things down. How can you slow things down? One way is to disengage, step away. Mm-hmm. Another way is to stay silent. If you don't say anything, you're not saying anything that you're going to regret. Another thing that I do when I'm overwhelmed is instead of respond to the other person, I ask them questions and I get them to talk. Because while they're talking, I don't have to say anything of my own. So that gives me more time to calm down. You know, different people have different tools that work for them, but those are some of the, work, the ones that work best for me. 
Yeah, so that, that's interesting because you brought up open-ended questions earlier. But before I get into that, let me uh, let me hit the chat really quick. So Mike wants to know, so Moshe, as a crisis negotiator, how different is it from conflict negotiations? Is there a huge difference? Um, you know, I, I think we, you know, I just want to make sure that I understand the wording correctly. So crisis negotiator usually happens when time is of the essence, right? A conflict right. can go on for years. Right? But a crisis is usually something that if you don't do something quickly, bad things are going to happen. So time is a huge factor in negotiations. And when you have a small amount of time, you need to get things moving a lot faster. So that's, that's one of the big differences. Um, very often um, in a crisis negotiation, everybody has bad alternatives. Right? One of the things that you want to understand in negotiations is what, what's going to happen if we don't come to an agreement? Our alternatives. What are my alternatives? We don't come to an agreement. What are your alternatives? In a crisis, very often everybody's alternatives are really bad, which means that it raises the stress level and it raises the importance of actually finding something that works. So when you negotiate in a crisis, the first thing you need to do is understand the lay of the land, try to get a picture of what's going on, and then try to get the communication going with whoever else is involved as quickly as possible because you don't have time to develop that communication over a long period of time. And communication is gonna be your key skill in negotiation. It's gonna be the key that opens up the opportunity to find common interests, to be able to, to find solutions for whatever's going on. Uh, so you need to open up that communication a lot faster. So, so Moshe, just to, to piggyback off that question, how important is it to identify who might be the alpha? So if you're dealing with more than one party, um, do you do you find it helpful to try to you know narrow it down like who's really driving the uh, the ship on the other side of the table? Whenever you're negotiating, and that's not just during crisis. I mean, this could be just in a regular business negotiation. You always sure. you always want to identify the decision makers, right? and it could be one, it could be several, but you want to identify who's really making the decisions because otherwise, you spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and effort negotiating with the people who aren't in a position to make the right decisions. So the people who don't have the ability or the authority to make the decisions that need to be made. So yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the ways to probe that, again, keep going back to that is the open-ended questions. You ask people questions and you hear what's coming back. And if the person really doesn't have the authority or they don't know what, what's going on or they have very limited insight, you're going to be able to tell from the questions that maybe they're not the best person to talk to. Awesome. All right. I got another question I, I want to uh, hit you with. Do you find it difficult to remain emotionally detached as a mediator? So, so could you talk about that a little bit? So the answer is no. Um, but I've been mediating for 27 years, right? For me now, mediating is like breathing. And what I love about mediation is that because it's not my conflict, I can focus 100% on the process. And that wasn't the case when I started. When you start mediating, you get very emotionally involved. You, you want to help the parties out. You want to make sure that nobody gets hurt. And you realize after a while that the more you worry about what the parties are doing, the less you have energy and, and focus to worry about what you need to do, which is manage a good process. Right? I can't make the parties do anything. And that's not my job. My job is to create a process for them where they can do it for themselves. So over time, as you practice mediating, you become more and more focused on the process. And 
less attuned to what's going on with the parties. Now, having said that, I'm not a robot. There are situations that are difficult for me. So I don't do family mediations. I used to do that for a while. Um, and one of the things that gets to me is kids. When people are doing things in the mediation or making decisions that are harmful to their kids, that was hard for me not to get emotionally involved with that because as a parent and as a caring human being, I care about children. And if I see you know, people doing bad things for their kids for their own benefit or just because they're angry with each other, that was hard for me. So that was harder for me to detach. And one of the decisions I made was that I don't really enjoy doing that kind of mediation. Well, can I ask you, so how did you negotiate that? I mean, you know, obviously without, you know, violating the sanctity of, of what you were doing, um, tell us a little bit about that. Like, how do you not um, get up from the table and, and, and really start pointing your finger at, at people if there's one party that seems to be using their kids as leverage more than the other? So the first thing is you need to manage your own emotions and you got to focus on your job. You know, it's like anything else. I have to focus on my job. You know, how, how does, you know, how, how does a, a doctor not start crying every, every time they see a patient who, you know, who, who's very, very sick? It's because you focus on your job. Your job is to heal them. So that's what you focus. So my job, my job is the process. So that's the first thing is focusing on my job. Secondly, realizing that there's a lot I don't know. It might appear to me that one person in, is manipulating or misusing their children in the process. But remember, I only have insight you know, that's very limited based on tiny little bits of information they gave me about their lives. There's this entire context out there that I have no idea about. And since I don't know their context, it's really wrong for me to assume based on the limited information that I have that what I see is really all that's there. And the third thing is, you know, ultimately, if I didn't exist, they would do these things. So I need to focus on how to get the best out of potentially a bad situation. And by engaging with them, by asking the questions, by really focusing with them, and very often, again, individually, when they're not with each other, about what's really important to them. And a question sometimes I ask them is, I understand that you're, you're really upset with your soon-to-be ex. And right now, all you're thinking about is, how do I get back at them? But what do you want five years from now? When you look back five years from now, it's a good question. Your situation, how well your kids are doing, and all that stuff, what do you want then? And by helping people take a perspective that takes them out of this moment where they're really just emotional about what's going on now, you can sometimes help them make decisions that are more consistent with their long-term interests. That, that, those are great tools. I, I, um, I really like that, you know, that asking that, that medium term question about what, you know, you know, five years from now about, you know, the importance of that, like, what do you want to have, you know, where do you want to be five years from now, essentially? That's yeah. um, I think it's a question we all need to ask ourselves more often because I think we get caught up in the moment. And then you think about like, oh, in five years, what I'm worried about now is going to be completely unimportant to me. Why am I so bent out of shape about it now? Right? And ha having that perspective can really help. And, and I can see that. And I think part of, you know, you alluded to this earlier, part of what makes difficult conversations difficult is that emotional, um, the emotional stakes of these conversations. There's a, you know, there's a lot 
at stake emotionally when you uh when you go down these roads where um you know you where you're really putting yourself out there yeah i mean look and you know, we, we talked before about the employment context and that's a you know, really interesting one if i go to my boss let's pretend you're my boss sure i come to you and i'm thinking all right i want to go and talk to dean about getting a 10 percent raise now i'm scared to go to you because first of all you might just laugh at me which will completely eviscerate me you, you might tell me that i'm not worth 10 percent um you might just give me a hard no uh so i'm going in there with this narrative in my mind of all these horrible things that might happen if i do this and if i do come to you and i ask you for a 10 percent raise and you say no you know i think i, I think you're only worth two percent well that's devastating because it has material impact on me right i might not be able to buy that condo i want to buy it, it has emotional impact on me because i'm disappointed but it also has an identity impact on me you're telling me that i'm not as good as i think i am and and that's completely devastating for me so one of the reasons that these difficult conversations are so difficult is that they occur on these multiple levels um you know there's there's actually a good book called difficult conversations that talks about these uh, these three different levels and you know you need to pay attention to what is this conversation doing both emotionally to the other person but how's it how's it impacting their identity it's powerful stuff now let me just let me ask you this so i'm not gonna let you off the hook that easy so suppose you come to me i'm your boss and i say you know something i'd love to give you the raise but I just, I just, I just don't have it. You know, I do think you're worth it, and I just don't have it. Does that help or does that hurt when you get an answer like that, where they do acknowledge your value, but they just, they just can't do it? So, in some ways, it's easier because emotionally you're removing it from me. Um, but in other ways, it's harder because what you're saying is, I would love to do this for you, but I can't. And you know, if you're, let's say, we're for a small business, and I come to you, and you're the owner you might actually not have the money right if we're if we're a big company and you're my boss you might not be able to do it because human resources won't let you do it or your boss won't let you do it or there's an allocation of funds and you've used it all right there, there are some real reasons why so then the question i would turn back to you with is if you think that this is my value and there's a good chance that the, the market thinks that this is my value um, I, I prefer to keep working here, but I need to see a way forward. What can you tell me about what a way forward might be here? If not today, then sometime in the future. I would say that is a difficult thing for me to answer at this time. We are still in the building phases of this company, and I see you as a pillar of this company. And I think that you're an important part of what we're doing here. But, um, you know, right now it's, it's just tough to tell, you know, we're just not where we need to be. We're at the infancy stages, but I, I see you as a partner in the growth of this company. I'm delighted to hear that. And if right now cash, meaning salary is something that you are, have some limitations because the company is new and growing, mm -hmm. what other forms of compensation could you imagine that won't cost the company any money now, but might provide me with some value as the company grows and I help it get there? 
you know something, Moshe? I'm open to that. What do you have in mind? Well, you know, we could talk about profit sharing. We could talk about equity. I'm sorry, about, you know, about stock options and those kind of things. And, you know, I'm open to talking about all of those things. What I'm looking for is some correlation between the value of providing the work I'm doing. And if you say this is a growth company, to be able to, to share in that growth in, in one of those ways. And these are excellent tools that people can use. I would actually throw another one on there. Um, you could maybe throw in paid time off, you know, maybe get extra vacation time out of it or something like like that. Certainly vacation time, potentially um, flexibility in terms of working from home work versus working working in the office. Um, maybe some some development opportunities. So so maybe some tuition reimbursement or opportunity to attend conferences and, and improve my skills. I'm, you know, those, those are all things that we can talk about. Um, and I'm here to try to do this in a way that's feasible for you. And um, it sounds like you're open to thinking about ways that would give me the value that you feel I'm, I'm bringing to the company and would give me continued incentive to, you know, do my best and make help the company grow. Um, but we just need to find one, you know, mechanism that works for both of us. And, and that's a beautiful thing that... Um End of exercise. Now I'm Dean again. I'm just regular Dean again. So that, <laughs> that, those are excellent tools because you're telling people, you know, when you're going in there and maybe you go in there and you're thinking dollars and cents, but there's other ways that you can walk out of that meeting with, with uh, and having created more value for yourself um, yeah. if you're open to it. Yeah. I mean, it could be something as simple as a bonus that is tied to some performance indicators for the company, right? Like there's, you need to, you need to broaden your thinking, right? Very often when I come in there, I've been thinking about this 10% raise for so long. That's the only thing I have in my mind, but in a way, 10% isn't meaningful. Why not 11? Why not nine? I mean, it's, it's an arbitrary number. There are things it stands behind, right? I need to make, make enough money to cover my bills. I need to make enough money that I feel valued. And I need to see some sort of future and to, to a link between what I'm doing and what I get for it. And I need to see some sort of valuation relative to the market. And if we can do those things, those are the interests that are really driving me in this conversation. And if I can get beyond the 10% and really think about what it is that I'm trying to get, get, through, you know, get through this conversation, there's a chance we'll, we'll find something that works for both of us. So, um, really quick, we're down to about three minutes. Um, it's all, it's like we talked about earlier, it's, it's flown by, but would you say, is it fair to say that, uh, a key component when you're embarking in these conversations would be to go in and have alternatives in mind when you, when you ultimately get stonewalled, when you have that conversation, because I think you have to go into that conversation expecting, um, some resistance when you're asking for people to reach in their pocket and, and, um, so, take so away from their bottom line. Absolutely. So first of all, preparation is absolutely key. You need to prepare and you need to prepare, among other things, different ideas that you could bring into the conversation that would, would help resolve things. But I would say, okay, going into a conversation where you expect to be stonewalled, first of all, manage your emotions. Expect that if you get stonewalled, you're going to have an emotional reaction to it and be prepared to manage your emotions down so you can engage. Secondly, after you've slowed down and get to the point where you're rational again, ask questions and listen. Right? 
Find out what's driving the other person. Find out as much as you can from them about what would work for them, what would not work for them, why they're saying what they're saying, what their constraints are. And only after they've shared a lot of information with you about what's driving them, you can mix into it what's driving you and then work together on presenting and uh, choosing between the different choices. I see what you did there. We must seek first to understand, right? Before we can negotiate. Absolutely. Because, you know, the problem we're trying to solve is what works for both of us. And if I have no idea what works for you, then I've got no way to work on solving the problem. So first seek to understand what works for the other person in terms of their interests, not what solutions work, but what's driving them in this mm -hmm. conversation. Bring in your own interests and then find solutions that work for both of you. All right. Really quick. Kate has a question. At what point does your perspective taking slash understanding of the other party's experience start to overtake your own position? How do you compromise without losing sight of your own desired outcome? So again, we're coming up short on time. Do you think you can uh, knock that out in about 45 seconds? I can. So first of all, there's a huge difference between understanding and agreement. So I can understand you without agreeing with anything you say. I don't actually talk about compromise at all. We're not compromising. What we're doing is we're understanding where the other person's coming from. And then we're seeing if there's a match between that and where we're coming from, so there's a solution. And remember, sometimes there's no solution, you have to actually walk away. And there's a huge difference between empathy and sympathy. You don't want to become sympathetic to their, to their concerns, because that means you will compromise. But you want to be empathetic in the sense that you understand where they're coming from, and then see if there's a match between what they need and what you need, so you can find a solution. Kate, great question. I hate to do this to you, but Moshe, thank you so much. I, in about 15, 20 seconds, can you just talk about what you got cooking? Maybe plug Collie Wobbles a little bit and um, talk a little well, bit. Sure, about I'm going to first show it. So my book came out about two years ago. It's called Collie Wobbles, How to Negotiate When Negotiating Makes You Nervous. Um, the idea there is that uh, you're, uh, you're not going to be able to negotiate effectively unless you manage your emotions simultaneously in real time. Um, I have another book out called uh, Optimism as a Choice, and I'm working on a third one right now that's going to be out soon called The Optimistic Pessimist, and uh, currently re writing three more books after that. So very excited, doing a lot of writing and, uh, and doing a lot of thinking about this and uh, related subjects. Can I ask you this? Do you have any of this on audiobook version? Yes. So Collie Wobbles is on paperback, ebook, and audiobook, and it's available in stores and it's available on, on, on the internet, on Amazon and elsewhere. All right, just wanted to throw that out there because I've noticed that the, the audiobook industry has gone through the roof. Uh, I'm a big audiobook person because, you know, I, I, I drive about an hour each way to work a lot of times. And um, obviously, it would be tough to read a book and drive, but it's uh, it's pretty cool being able to um, listen to a book uh, and, coming and going. And if you get it on Audible, you actually hear my voice reading it. <laughs> That's a heck of a plug right there, Moshe. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Moshe, again, thank you so much for taking time away from your family. This has been a great conversation. I would love to maybe have you back again so we can dive back into the, you know, the empathy versus sympathy part, part of negotiations that are uh, that are so, so important for, uh, for these difficult conversations. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It would be an honor to come back sometime. All right, folks, thanks again for um, checking us out. Again, if you like this episode, please like, please share, please follow us on all of your favorite social media channels. And uh, we're, again, it's great to be back and I can't wait to bring you more great content. So have a good night, everybody. And remember, hashtag supply the why. Take care.